Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hello, I am so glad that you are here with me today on episode 17 of the Liberty Cafe. I am sure that you have heard about the battle that is taking place in our country over the opening of the public schools. Republicans across the country tend to generally be pushing for the reopening of the public schools, while Democrats generally have gone around accusing Republicans of wanting to basically kill people because they want to reopen the public schools. And from one perspective, the sides in this battle make sense. Republicans, conservatives, people in general are sick and tired of liberals and Democrats and the government shutting down our lives. Stay-at-home orders, shutting down our jobs, our businesses, tanking the economy. Republicans, people, are just tired of that going on. And so it seems natural in one sense for them to be pushing back against the desire of liberals to keep the public schools closed. They want life to return to normal. But if you look at it from another perspective, it seems like this debate is really backwards. For a long time, conservatives, not necessarily Republicans, but conservatives have been fighting against public schools for a long time, been trying to offer alternatives to that, school choice, whether it's charter schools, which are just a different form of public schools, or you can actually use some of the funds that are going to public schools for, for private school options. And there's all kinds of ways to think about that, and there's all kinds of ways to make that happen. But there's been this push against public schools for a long time, but yet here, Republicans are pushing and saying, let's reopen the public schools. So I think really, in some ways, this is getting it backwards, that Republicans ought to be using this time not to push for reopening the schools, but for totally revamping our system of public education and even defunding public education. To heck with defunding police, let's defund public education. Because when I think about the public schools today and the culture around us, it really reminds me of what we read in chapter 2 of the book of Judges. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. It simply appears to me that if you look at the world around us today, and particularly the upcoming generation, it's a generation that doesn't know God. It's, it's certainly a generation that doesn't know God's word and what he thinks the world should look like. It doesn't know what parents should be doing for their children and what children should be learning, which is learning about God and his word. So I'd like us to listen to a few examples of children, I think, who miss this, who don't show a recognition or understanding of who God is and what he has to teach us. Now, I don't know if any of these people are saved or not, because I don't know their hearts. But let's listen to what they have to say, and I, and I think this will prove my point. The first of these 
that we'll listen to today is Braden Harrington. You may not know his name, but you've probably heard of him because he's the young man, the 13-year-old, who just spoke at the Democratic National Convention about Joe Biden. So let's give him a listen. We all want the world to feel better. We need the world to feel better. I'm just a regular kid, and in a short amount of time, Joe Biden made me more confident about something that's bothered me my whole life. Joe Biden cared. Imagine what he could do for all of us. Kids like me are counting on you to elect someone we can all look up to. Someone who cares. Someone who will make our country and the world feel better. We're counting on you to elect Joe Biden. The second example I'd like us to listen to is a young lady. I don't know her name, but she's a Black Lives Matters activist in Chicago. And she has a few things to say to us. Actually, she has a few things to tell us. So let's listen to her. This is unacceptable. This is our city. Our city. And we're taking this shit back. Point blank, period. End of discussion. We have demands and they need to be met. And I feel like I've been saying this too much. We're not asking you anything. We're telling you what's about to happen with your permission or not. You can listen to us or you can get ran over. And that's all I have to say. So far, we've been moving kind of up the age scale. Braden Harrington's about 13. The Black Lives Matters activist looked like she was maybe around 20 or so. Next, we're going to listen to Ibram X. Kende. He's towards the upper end of the latest generation. He's about 40, I believe. And he's already has his PhD, and he's a professor, and he teaches about racism. So let's listen to Dr. Kendi for just a few minutes. It's racist policies that have largely yielded racial inequities, and it's racist ideas that have largely caused Americans to see those racial inequities as normal. Hi, my name is Ibram X. Kendi, and I think the best way to fix politics is to pass an anti-racism amendment. When we think about our democracy and, and one of the reasons why it's fractured and one of the reasons why it's always been fractured has been because of racism. And so in order to truly eliminate racial inequities, we have to eliminate racist policies. We have to constitutionalize the idea that a racial inequity is caused by a racist policy. We have to prevent public officials from dividing Americans through racist ideas. You can't necessarily fix political divergence and political difference. But what you can fix is making sure those ideologies are based in facts, are based in reality, are not based in bigotry. Now, in the talk he gave there, Dr. Kendi didn't get into the details about what his constitutional amendment would look like, but he did write about it in another place. And I think that's really worth listening to. So let me just read that to you. The amendment would make unconstitutional racial iniquity over a certain threshold as well as racist ideas by public officials, with racist ideas and public official clearly defined. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, the DOA, comprised of formally trained experts on racism and no political appointees. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all 
local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial iniquity. They would monitor those policies, and they would investigate private racist policies when racial iniquity surfaces, and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. That, of course, is pretty scary. So what we would have here with this Department of Anti-Racism is rule by bureaucrats. It, it takes us back to the days, perhaps, of the Mandarin class in, in ancient China who would rule everything. Public officials, whether at the national, the state, or the local level, would have no say over what happened in this country. This They might pass laws, they might adopt policies, but none of them could take place unless these formally trained experts, probably going to the same schools that the doctor went to, public schools in part, and leading the, the problems in this country, and of course the, the higher education system that we go to, they would determine what's wrong. They would set the standards for these things. What is racist and what's not racist, what a public official is, and they would hold control over that, and they'd be able to discipline those public officials and policymakers who didn't voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. And I suspect that the disciplinary tools wouldn't be limited to just the public officials and policymakers, but to any of us who wouldn't voluntarily change our racist ideas. So I think we have here together a good cross-section, a collection of what the world looks like after decades and decades and decades of public education. Now, I don't know all the schools that these three people went to. I know Dr. Kendi actually started out in a Christian school, but it seems like it was probably associated somehow with the Methodist denomination, at least his parents, now that they're retired, are Methodist ministers. So perhaps we can see where that aspect of Christianity has fallen down and failed to raise up children in the name of the Lord and knowing God. But certainly, I think, he went eventually to public high schools, and then he went into our system of higher education, too, which is not all public, but it's all publicly funded, except for very few schools. So we've got this generation, it's actually more than one generation, it's generations now, that have come up not knowing the Lord because they're in the public schools today. And th this brings us to the, the concept of neutrality because the big failure that has gone around around public schools is that there's this concept that, well, public schools can just be neutral. Since we all public, fund public schools and we all don't believe the same thing, that we can just teach these neutral principles that we all agree on, two plus two equals four, adjective, nouns, those kinds of things, and then all will be okay. But of course, in real life, there is no such thing as neutrality. You're either on God's side or you're not on God's side. And Toby Sumter, of Cross Politic up in Moscow, Idaho, and, and the good folks up there, has something to say about that in, in a recent podcast. So I wanted us to listen to Toby Sumter talk about the concept of neutrality. 
this is as good a time as any to remind you that there's nothing that is neutral. Nothing in this world is religiously neutral. That's why the definition of emergency uh, is getting messed, messed with. Everything is either ultimately serving Christ or is it is at war with Christ. Everything. Mathematics, science, medicine, history, everything is either serving Christ or it is at war with Christ. This is why public government schools have been such a cancer to our culture. It's not that they're, it's not merely that they're open, it's not that they're openly attacking Christianity. They, they do that sometimes, but they're not openly attacking Christianity all the time. And that's, and that's not the most insidious part of them. Rather, they are, they are, they require teachers, they require teachers to treat Jesus Christ as optional. That's the poison. That's the cancer. They are required. Teachers in public schools are required to teach Jesus Christ as optional all day long. But to treat Jesus Christ as optional is to be at war with Jesus Christ. He is Lord. And there is no such thing as an optional Lord. To teach Jesus as optional Lord is to say he is no Lord. You need not submit to him. You can submit to him if you want to. That's not a Lord, right? That means you're at war with his Lordship. And far too many Christians have joined that war against Jesus Christ. So then what constitutes good health? What is good for people? What is good for children? By what standard? If you will not have the Lord Jesus, if you will not have his word, the word of God, the Bible as your standard, then you will have another standard foisted upon you. And at some point, the authorized officer may use such force as is reasonably necessary. Is telling a little boy that he cannot wear a dress harmful? Is it harmful to his health? Is spanking the loving, gracious administration of corporal punishment? Is it child abuse? Is counseling a homosexual to repent of his sin and walk in the light? Is that a hate crime? Well, if it hurts their feelings, is it a health crime now as well? And if governments can take your children for a virus that 99.9% .9 of people will recover from, then anything that has a 0.1% chance of resulting in death may be twisted into a health emergency. The only cure for this kind of insanity is the gospel. People do not come back from this by reasoning with them. Jesus was crucified for sinners. He was crucified for this kind of sinful insanity, and he was raised from the dead to make all things new. Interestingly enough, I was listening to who I assume is a liberal professor uh, by the name of Lori Rubel. She's a math education professor at Brooklyn College. And, and she came out the other day and said that the idea of cultural neutrality in math is a myth. And that asking whether 2 plus 2 equals 4 reeks of white supremacist patriarchy. And then she tweeted, y'all must know that the idea that math is objective or neutral is a myth. Well, the interesting thing is here that I agree with her. That, as Toby Sumter very well points out, neutrality is a myth. But of course, she's coming at it from a different perspective. But she points out that one of the big problems we see, even within the Christian church and Christian parents sending their kids to public schools, that, that you can go and get a neutral public education. But, but you just can't. And the truth of the matter is, 
that's the way public schools, public education was designed in the first place. One of the earliest proponents of public education was Horace Mann. And he clearly taught that education should be universal, available to everybody, and paid for by everybody. It should be free, and that it should be non-sectarian. It shouldn't be involved with religion at all. And it should be its aim should be social efficiency, civic virtue, and character, rather than just even mere learning. He wanted this neutral school, but it wasn't neutral at all because he wanted to define he and his friends wanted to find what social efficiency was, what civic virtue was, and what character was. John Dewey came along later as a large proponent of public education, and he believed that the products of public education should be creative, well-adjusted equalitarians who would make over American society in their own image. He wants the public schools to make American society in their own image, not God's image, not what he had to say about us. From the very beginning, public education has not been neutral, the purpose behind it. And we've seen that just in the last few days. You may have heard about the school teacher up in Philadelphia, Matthew Kay, who was expressing anxiety about the teachers' ability to effectively accomplish their equality inclusion work over Zoom when they can't be sure who's overhearing them. He, he was very upset about the fact that parents at home might be able to see actually what is going on in the classroom. And he, he was concerned about the damage that might be caused by the parents in what he called an honest conversation about gender and sexuality. Here's an interesting quote from him. If we are engaged in the messy work of destabilizing a kid's racism or homophobia or transphobia, how much do we want their classmates' parents piling on. And of course, you've probably heard about the Tennessee School District, who was attempting to force parents to sign a document pledging that they would not listen to their children's instruction online in their own homes. Now, there's been so much pushback about that, they finally relented on that, but they are still telling parents that they can't record what's going on in the classroom. Now, the Tennessee School District is using the excuse of student privacy, but I think we all know what's going on here. They're ashamed of what they're doing. They want to promote this leftist mentality. They want to destabilize what the parents are teaching their kids at home, and they can't do that if the parents are watching what's going on. This is a real problem today. But it's not, of course, just what's going on in the classrooms that is a problem. It's also just how much public schools cost. I've got some numbers here for Texas. Texas taxpayers currently spend about $70 billion a year on public K-12 through education. This is up from only about $38 billion a year back in 2003 and 2004. Much more than half of that is spent on salaries, right? And the average teacher in Texas, if you annualize it out over 12 months, remember most teachers only work for about nine months. If you annualize it out, they're pulling down close to $70,000 a year. That's a lot of money. And of course, the dollars per student being spent 
on public education outside of Texas and places like New York and New Jersey and California are even much higher. And even in Texas and across the average of the United States, we spend so much more per student than they do in almost anywhere else in the world. It's breaking the public bank. If you put together education, which includes public education and higher education, and then healthcare, there is the bulk of what government spends, at least at the state level. And at the national level, it's a large chunk of your money as well. We've got two reasons here, the cost and the leftist agenda that's being taught and promoted in the public schools. Why conservatives should be pushing not just not to get their kids back in the public schools, instead to defund and ultimately eliminate the public schools. Now, there are ways to do that, and I'm not going to talk about them here. I hope to write about this soon. But the key point to make is that this is only going to happen if we want it to happen. We've been letting this go on for far too long. Conservatives and Christian parents have to realize the harm that are being done to their children by putting them in public schools. They have to be willing, we have to be willing, to acknowledge and see the harm being done to our nation and our societies by the public schools. And we have to see that not just in the current social collapse that we are witnessing, but in the fact that we are raising up generation after generation of children who don't know the Lord. And even among our children who are being taught by him at home or in church, public education is at the same time teaching them that it is okay to ignore the Lord when it comes to math, science, you name it. So you have to wonder in some situations, how long will it be before those children begin to ignore God in all aspects of their life? As Pastor Sumter put it, the only hope for changing ourselves and our children in this world is the gospel. There is no other hope for us. Public policy changes won't do it, although we need public policy changes. It's got to be a change of the heart. Now, the good news is that our King Jesus is sitting on his throne even now, and he's in charge of all things. He is moving the whole world towards victory over all his enemies. So we must trust in him for that. But we must also remember what Paul tells us in Romans, that God is at work in this world today crushing Satan under our feet. Christ crushed Satan on the cross, but there is still more crushing to be done, and God uses our feet to do this. So we have work to do by entering into this battle with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and doing his kingdom work. And I'd suggest to you that one of the best ways we can do that in this world today is by defunding and eliminating public schools. Thank you for being with me today on the Liberty Cafe.